0: Hello and welcome to the Tech Disruptors podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence. In this podcast series, we talk with CEOs and management teams about their views on disruption and how it is driving their decision making and strategy. My name is Mandeep and with me today is Armand Datkar, CTO and co-founder of HashiCorp. Armand, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Great. I was thinking about, you know, what's the best way to structure this conversation? And look, you know, you you guys have had a great IPO. Obviously, the market is a, a little bit of a roller coaster right now. But maybe, you know, just to level set everything, there is a lot of confusion. I, I shouldn't say confusion, but, you know, a lot of questions around what exactly does Hashi HashiCorp do in terms of, you know, the the layer of cloud they operate in, is it uh SaaS, PaaS, IAS? And then, you know, in terms of the segment exposure, is it provisioning, DevOps, security, networking? Maybe that is, you know, a good point to start and then we can build on that.
1: Sure, yeah, no, happy to. And I think uh, certainly for, <laughs> I think it's such a complicated space in general when we talk about sort of the, you know, the, the tech sector and the particular niche we're in, that it's uh, sometimes hard for people that are uh, on the outside of it. but I think the simple historical analogy I'd use is if we kind of go back to the, you know, the hardware era, right. You add organizations that were buying from many different vendors, right. Whether it was storage, you know, compute, networking gear, et cetera. But then ultimately their challenge was how do I, you know, have a consistent management tooling approach so that for my internal infrastructure and app teams, I had one way that they're deploying, managing their applications across all these different vendors. And effectively that formed an operating model for how I ran my data center. Now, I think the challenge is flash forward to a cloud world. You're not buying networking routers and switches and hardware anymore, but you are consuming from cloud providers, right? And for most large enterprises, that's a multi-cloud reality. So they might be, you know, a VMware shop on-prem. They might have Amazon, Azure, and Google in their public cloud environment. So their new challenge is great. I'm straddling four different environments. How do I enable my applications to be delivered in a kind of a consistent way across, right? Like I don't want to have four different processes, one for each environment. So that's really the box where HashiCorp fits, right? It's about delivering kind of that consistent operating model, that consistent workflow for organizations. So they can deliver an application, whether it's on Amazon or Azure and they're on-prem in a consistent way. But really thinking about great. What, what matters to the business is ultimately my development teams They want to be able to self-service their infrastructure. They want to be able to make changes quickly. They want to be able to run a million miles an hour. So it's really about empowering those development teams or application teams in this kind of a multi-cloud world. So that's the layer where our tooling sits. We kind of sit in between, you know, the cloud providers and, and supporting those sort of end developers within the kind of enterprises to give them that consistency. Right. That's maybe the the easiest way to understand it. So I I guess one of the questions
0: we get from uh, investors and folks who want to better understand HashiCorp is, is it displacing the hypervisor software? Because hypervisor really sits on top of, you know, the bare metal server. So, or is this a middleware layer on top of, you know, the cloud? So... Just in terms of the value proposition and sizing the addressable market, which you could argue, you know, can be consumption-based or instance-based or workload-based. But in terms of what it does, I, I think that's important to just kind of lay it out in terms of where it sits and is it displacing something
1: or is it a new requirement that every enterprise has? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. And I think maybe like sometimes it's, it can be a bit of abstract because we have so many products, but let's talk about, let's make it a little concrete, right? So if we take one of our you know, most well-known products, Terraform as an example, so Terraform is our tool for doing, you know, multi-cloud provisioning. And so with Terraform, great. I have a single language and workflow where I describe and say, Hey, I want to, let's say I want five VMs on premise and I want five VMs on Amazon just to make it simple. Then what we do is we integrate natively with Amazon's API. So we'll talk to Amazon. and say, great provision, five VMs to this specification on premise. We might talk directly to VMware's native API. And so from the customer's perspective, this is a sort of using your language. It's maybe a middleware layer on top of that. They're provisioning and defining their infrastructure using Terraform. And then we have the integration with, you know, I think today, 1500 different technologies. To then say, great, we're going to integrate with Amazon to provision it natively in that environment, we'll integrate with VMware and their hypervisor to provision on that environment. So it doesn't displace their hypervisor. It's actually a very tight integration with it. And we talk to those native platform layers, whether it's, you know, VMware or OpenStack on-prem or any of the cloud providers. So it, it's more of a middleware that provides that consistent kind of abstraction across the different environments.
0: So having talked to a lot of CTOs and, you know enterprise folks over the years, I know they don't like fragmentation. I know they don't like to deal with, you know, multiple vendors, one doing APIs, one doing observability, one doing, you know, orchestration. Like, doesn't this make it more fragmented if, if you take this approach?
1: You know, in some sense, the way we think about it is, you know, we, we're sort of the, you know, we're the tail. We don't get to wag the dog a little bit. And what I mean by that is most of the time, the customers that are coming to us, they've already selected multi-cloud. So in some sense, they've said, Hey, I'm going to commit to Amazon, because I think they have, you know, let's say best class developer tools in Google. Cause they have best of class, you know, data, AIML. So they've made that choice to say, I'm going to go multi-cloud. Then they're coming to us saying, help me make this manageable. Right? So in some sense, it's not the other way around. We're not going to them saying, Hey. You should embrace multi-cloud and go more fragmented. And by the way, our can help you with that. It's like, they've made a business decision, but they want to go multi-cloud. Whether that's because they want leverage against the different vendors. They want best in breed technology. It's driven by compliance requirements. You know, there's a lot of different business reasons for it. But then I think when they come to HashiCorp, it's about how do I make my life manageable because now I've inherited three or four different environments that I'm operating in. And like, I really don't want to have three or four different, like processes, three or four different compliance approaches, three or four different security approaches, right? Like help me to have one approach across those environments.
0: I mean, since this is an investment podcast, so maybe I'll ask you for some numbers, like in terms of workloads, how many cloud workloads do you provision through the platform versus how many of the on-premise workloads do you provision, any sense of, you know, the percentage splits?
1: Yeah, I mean, sizing is always a little bit, uh, a little bit tricky on these things, right? Because obviously the, you know, the underlying provider data, the cloud provider data, we don't, they don't share it with us. But what we do get visibility on is we get a look at basically, you know, things like what's our downloads, how many sort of Terraform providers are being used The so Terraform providers or basically the integration into those underlying platforms. So from the kind of metrics we get visibility into what's clear is, you know, Terraform does you know, hundreds of millions of downloads Mm -hmm. just on providers like Amazon, Azure, Google on each of those we do millions of downloads, right? So it's fair for us to say there's a very large percentage of workload that, that we're sort of drive with them. In fact, the only tool that the cloud providers really support from a provisioning standpoint outside of their own native tooling is basically the HashiCorp tool, right? So, you know, whether it's Microsoft, Google, Amazon, all of them have leaned in to, Hey, we have official Terraform modules. We partner commercially. We sort of support this as an outside option. So, you know, I don't think they share the statistics, but obviously it represents a, a significant and meaningful part of their, their workload, that they're willing to invest in
0: And so I've followed the development, or I I guess, how containers and Kubernetes have evolved and how, you know, it became part of the cloud infrastructure. So help me understand, you know, given some of your product suite is open source, like, does it worry you that, Amazon or Microsoft can build on what is out there on the open source side, and some of the companies like MongoDB and Elastic over the years have struggled with, you know, just that open source approach. So curious to hear from you, you know, how you think about the open source nature of your product and uh, how do you offset some of those
1: concerns? No, it's a super good question, and I think that open source always is a—it's a complicated topic for people I think there's also just so many different. I'll call it approaches to open source uh, and there's a lot of nuance to it. So, you know, I'll share a little bit about how we think about it. You know, ultimately for us, we take a, I'll call it a very much a vendor led approach to open source, right? I think some, some folks take a very much more foundation led where there's an upstream foundation, Apache project or a Linux foundation project. And then there's a commercial entity that's sort of, you know, commercializing that, but that fundamentally the upstream has a sort of open governance. HashiCorp doesn't do that, right? So with HashiCorp, we are fundamentally the upstream of all of our projects. There isn't a Linux foundation version of our tools or an Apache foundation version of the tools. It's the HashiCorp version and that's it. And so I think that's a really important nuance because every contribution that comes to our projects ultimately has to be approved by a HashiCorp employee, right? And if they're signing a contributor licensing agreement, they're granting exclusive right to HashiCorp to do a license that IP under a commercial agreement. So that's very different than maybe an Apache type of a model where it is an open foundation or a Linux foundation type model where other vendors could take that IP and also sort of dual license it, right? Like the way we've sort of constructed it, we're the upstream. We have that exclusive sort of right. We control the kind of destiny of the projects. So I think that makes it, you know, fairly challenging, frankly, for some other vendor to, to sort of commercialize it because they don't control the upstream. They don't really have say on roadmap. Uh, And they don't have rights to do a license that's separately. So I think that's one piece of it. The second piece of it is, you know, really our software is much more integration based than some of the other vendors you mentioned, like Mongo, right? A database, you don't really integrate it with much, right? Like you put data in, you take data out. There's not an ecosystem. Versus if you take our tools, they are very much about infrastructure integration. So Terraform has 1500 plus integrations today. Vault has, you know, over 150. And so when we think about that program, there's a specific partner alliance effort we run where we are partners with Palo Alto and Cisco and VMware and all the cloud providers, so on and so forth. And we drive a certification for all that. So it's not just about taking a product. You'd have to rebuild the entire ecosystem that we've built around it because they all partner with us. I think the third piece and this is a really important one in terms of like how we work with the cloud providers is, you know, unlike something like a database where that is compute storage network heavy and turns out the things clouds monetize is compute storage and networking. So those are sort of attractive products for the cloud providers. Our tooling is very much management tools, right? So we help users manage and deploy more workload into the cloud, but they're not compute heavy, they're not data heavy, they're not storage heavy. So in practice, the kind of tooling we make, the clouds have their own version of it, right, that we, we sort of compete with in, in sort of a friendly way, but they give those tools away for free right? Like Amazon's cloud formation is a free product. It's not a revenue driver for them. So when they think about Terraform and how we relate to them, it's very much a win-win, part, right? Like what we're doing is they're saying, Hey, we're going to make it easier for your customers to bring more workload to Amazon or bring more workload to Azure and drive your consumption higher. And so in the field, we actually have a very friendly relationship because they understand that bringing Kashi in isn't skin off of our back, right? Like we're not losing storage revenue or losing, you know, networking or compute dollars to HashiCorp where instead of they're using our free management tooling, they're using HashiCorp's paid management tooling. Great. That's accelerating then our sort of cloud consumed revenue faster. So I think that's the way the cloud providers see it. And so we have a very much a kind of a win-win relationship with them.
0: So would it be fair to say that you are doing what a services vendor would help an on-premise company with in terms of migrating their
1: workloads to public cloud, for example. Yeah. I guess the nuance I would add is that we're just, we're not a services vendor. (laughs) So typically it ends up being a bit of a three-way relationship with a customer, right? It's like there's the CSP, right? So it might be, you know, Azure might be their preferred cloud. We might be working with a partner like Accenture who's driving the services and then they're using our tooling as part of great. Now we can define a consistent way that you're doing your on-prem let's say, and your Azure workload and Accenture is helping drive that migration.
0: So middleware is the right way to describe, you know, how you fit into this stack. And so you are sort of the middleware of the cloud, if, if I may characterize it that way. Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So in terms of the competitors, and I get this question a lot, like who do you think internally as your biggest competitor? We
1: think about it kind of. I'll call it a few buckets, right? I think our first biggest bucket, frankly, is our own open source. And I think this is the funky nuance of open sources. You know, you blanket the market with, you know, hundreds of millions of downloads and then, you know, great well we've shared is we have, you know, a few thousand customers. There's a big gap between those two numbers, right? And so there's this huge surface area of our open source users. And that's frankly our primary competition is like, how do we show enough differentiated value to really move those users from open source to kind of a commercial offering? That's sort of bucket one bucket two, I would say is very much sort of, you know, pick your legacy vendors, right? You know, I think they have their own set of management tooling. They have their own sort of, uh, you know, views on, on sort of migrating to cloud. I think by and large, most of those solutions tend to be, you know, built for the private data center, right? That's where those legacy vendors were kind of born. They designed it around the paradigms and models of private data center. So I think from a customer perspective, oftentimes they're trying to move away from some of those paradigms, whether it's sort of a perimeter or IP based security approach. And they're saying, you know what, that doesn't fit in cloud. So I'm going to adopt vault and console because it's more about an identity based approach to security, or it's sort of a zero trust approach to security. Or it's a manual provisioning tool where great. I put a user portal and sell points and clicks versus they're saying, actually, I'm going to move to an automated kind of infrastructure as code way of provisioning. Great Terraform makes more sense. So I think there is a whole set of kind of legacy vendors that, you know, are built around a more ticket driven private data center, static world that, you know, we compete with them and it's a, it's a replacement of them as people move to cloud. And then, you know, I think the third bucket is probably, you know, point solutions. And I think what's kind of unique about HashiCorp is we're this really broad portfolio company, we have eight products, customers tend to see us as a sort of a strategic partner as they go to cloud, cause they're consuming multiple pieces of the portfolio. So in any one, for any one product, there's probably a point vendor that competes with us on that one thing. But when we zoom out to really saying, Hey, what we're doing as a company is providing that middleware, if we want to use that language, the holistic middleware of how do you do it and operate across provisioning, security, networking, and runtime. there isn't really another vendor that has that sort of comprehensive portfolio. Yeah. There's vendors for any one of those eight products, but nobody else who spans all that whole stack basically.
0: So let me ask you this, if I'm using HashiCorp, do I need, or I I guess if I am also using Okta or, you know, Ping or some other identity management, is there a way that I can do my own identity management if I'm using HashiCorp, using the tools that you guys provide?
1: Absolutely. In fact, we're a big Okta customer ourselves. <laughs> so the, you know, we don't play in the, in the human identity space, right? So in, in, for sort of classic IDP market, we integrate super closely with Okta, Ping, you know, Azure AD, you know, Microsoft's a big partner of ours. So in that in human identity space, we don't really play, we integrate with all of those folks. I think for us, it's really more great, assuming you have an IDP like Okta, How do I then use that in terms of applying kind of a zero trust approach to my data center security. And so we connect Okta to whether it's about human access to a system. If I'm a, you know, I'm a business analyst and I need access to an internal tool. Great. We have a product that really looks at that, you know, privilege access management product. If it's an automated problem, meaning it's my, you know, I have multiple applications, my web application needs to talk to my database. How am I leveraging machine and application identity to do that same enforcement? And then there's a vault challenge around how do I manage certificates, credentials, machine and application identity. So we're much more focused on sort of the application infrastructure side of the house, and then we integrate with sort of the major IDPs on on sort of human identity.
0: And and just so that I, I guess just to get back to the open source aspect of containers and Kubernetes how much dependent are you on just the natural kind of evolution of kubernetes in terms of enhancing your offering and and like there are obviously different vendors who contribute to kubernetes kind of development so curious if you have any thoughts around you know like how much do you depend on on all these participants
1: yeah no it's a that's a really good question so i think one of the one of the things I think we're, we're sort of very open about, we talk about all the time is we have what we call like the Tau of HashiCorp and this is sort of our design principles and sort of the product ethos behind all the tools. And we published that in the kind of the first year of the company's history. And it's never really changed. It's kind of foundational to us. And I think the first one in that is what we refer to as this principle of like the workflow is more important than the technology. So we call it workflow over technologies. And what do I mean by that? How does that tie back to your question here? Is that our view is that there's some fundamental workflows when we talk about building and delivering, you know, infrastructure and applications that transcends the underlying technology. And so, you know, what that, you know, how, how does this connect to your question here is all of our products actually predate Kubernetes, right? If we look at the life cycle of our company, we actually were you know, born well before containers existed well before containers existed, but. What's super critical is we designed all of our tooling around this idea that the workflow, whether it's the provisioning workflow, the security workflows, the networking workflows, that they will need to integrate with various technologies because those things are going to evolve and they're going to come and they're going to go. And so when we started the company in 2012, yeah, containers didn't exist. Kubernetes didn't exist. Serverless didn't exist. But as those things have come to be, because we've taken this product ethos that we have to design for extensibility and know that that change is going to happen. It became a natural evolution for us. So then we said, great. If you're deploying Kubernetes, you have to provision the clusters. You have to deploy secrets to it. You have to network it to the rest of your applications. So those all became natural integration points where we said, let's support Kubernetes with Terraform and vaults and console and, you know, the rest of the portfolio, so it's actually become a, uh, a big tailwind for us, frankly, as customers adopt Kubernetes, they end up with a bunch of these challenges around provisioning, networking, security, And that becomes an opportunity for us to sort of solve those problems. I think what we're starting to see is customers even now move beyond Kubernetes to sort of the next wave, which is they're saying, "Hey, I want to embrace serverless, have the cloud native platforms just run this stuff for me." So as they then do that next step migration, that becomes yet another opportunity for us first to say, "Great, the fundamental workflow didn't change. Now the technology has evolved. We're just going to integrate whether it's with Am- Amazon's Lambda you know environment or Google's Cloud Run environment. So we integrate those different platforms in, and then." I think the consistency story, that becomes another really important value part for the customer, which is great. I have my VM-based workloads. I had some workload I put on Kubernetes now embracing serverless, but what HashiCorp is enabling means I have a consistent approach across all of those different generations of technology. Yeah. So maybe a bit of a, a long-winded answer, but I think the heart of it is, you know, we're not tied to Kubernetes in the sense of like, we're not blocked on, or nor do we like, you know, wait on them for any development, right? We We sort of yeah. have our own lifecycle and own our destiny outside of Kubernetes, but we see it as an important tailwind for driving adoption and usage of our, of our products, both open source and commercial, but we don't see it as sort of the end all be all. And, you know, when serverless is the next big wave, great. You know, we're already investing to support that as well.
0: Thank you. Maybe we can spend a few minutes on use cases. So. When I think about, you know, just the value proposition of the tools that you provide, obviously provisioning is a big one, but I also know that over the years, you know, companies have started off in DevOps or operations management, but gradually they branch into security because there are a lot of dollars that companies spend on security. So. How big of a use case is security for you? And then
1: just any adjacent areas that you think makes sense from a product portfolio perspective. Yeah, no, I think that's a, it's a great one. And I think, you know, some, one of the stats we shared in, in our public filings, uh, is that 85% of our revenue is driven by our Terraform product, which is our provisioning product and Vault, our security product, right? So I think to your point, there's a very natural fit between those two, which is you start with provisioning. And then very quickly you're like, okay, great. I've provisioned all this infrastructure. How do I secure it? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so from our perspective, this sort of, you know, sometimes you might wonder like, Hey, isn't that kind of odd, right? If you're a, if you're a DevOps vendor, why are they also in the security space? But I think what's changed now is that these two are much more tightly coupled in a cloud environment. And, and so for us, we see it as a very natural linkage between the two as customers start day one, they provision infrastructure day two. Now they wonder how do I manage my cloud keys? How do I automate, you know, updating those credentials? How do I think about rotation? So all of those become sort of where we sort of focus on it with our vault boundary sort of security products. I think the other big theme, and I think we've seen a shift in the markets over the last call it 12, 18 months is zero trust has become really top of mind for folks. So, you know, I think that's become kind of a fundamental pivot in terms of how people are even thinking about protecting their data centers, protecting their, you know, infrastructure It used to be very much buy a lot of firewalls and WAFs and networking middleware and kind of put it at the front door versus now people are realizing, okay, but what happens if you have a Solar Winds type breach and you make it past the front door and the inside's all soft. <laughs> yeah. And so they're really acknowledging that you actually have to invest in hardening the inside, not just hardening the four walls, if you will. Right. And so I think that then creates a lot of demand around tooling like vault where you say, okay, we need to think about application identity. We need to think about credential management and rotation. And then with console, as we think about from a networking perspective, how do I actually secure that east-west communication within the data center? I don't want to just be wide open on the inside because that's how you get that sort of lateral movement that, you know, SolarWinds exploit a basis. So would that
0: put you in competition with someone like Zscaler or Cloudflare for that matter?
1: I think it's a. Yeah, this is where uh, some of these lines get blurry. I think those folks sit slightly. I'll call it on the outside of the data center, right? So you might use Cloudflare as your CDN, as you're bringing traffic in. So you're ingressing traffic from public internet through your CDN layer or through Zscaler, let's say, and then they connect you into the private data center environment where they're relatively uninvolved, right? Cloudflare sits sort of outside your data center, Zscaler sits sort of outside your data center. Once it's inside the data center, I think that's been more historically where you have, you know, players like Palo Alto networks checkpoint, Fortinet, you're putting firewalls and zones on the inside of your data center. And I think people are starting to say, does that firewall-based approach make sense for me? Or do I need to move to more of a sort of modern identity model, more of a a sort of a micro segmentation model? That's where our tooling like vault and, you know, a console tend to fit is more of that modern approach within the data center.
0: So that's a a very important point, actually. I didn't realize that, you know, HashiCorp isn't just used for public cloud workloads only, but also for somebody's enterprise on-premise data center, and you can modernize it with what you guys are providing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, And I think that's actually, I mean, when we talk about sort of when and why we're engaging with customers, obviously a huge catalyst is public cloud adoption, but a second one is maybe, you know, as maybe not as big, but it's up there is private cloud modernization, which is a lot of folks are deeply capitalized on their investments on their data center, but they're you know, saying, hey, why can't we operate it in a modern cloud-like? And so, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely, case, right? a huge footprint for us is really helping customers modernize their approach.
0: But would know, it require right? you to build more integrations with some of the on-premise players? I mean, you already have all the integrations with the suite of public cloud
1: providers. So would this require new development or you already have that? And yeah, we're already, you know, very close partners with Cisco and Palo Alto Networks and VMware and, you know, OpenStack and, and sort of that on-premise kind of universal of folks. So yeah, that, that is a, a community that we engage with very closely.
0: Okay. I have the last 10 minutes, so maybe we'll pivot to the rapid fire questions and, you know, just, I I like to bring this up because it gives an opportunity to kind of, you know, talk about things we don't touch on normally when we are talking about the technical aspects, but I, I think it's important for anyone who wants to understand the company to hear about the responses. So. Any misconceptions about HashiCorp that you feel investment community or just overall enterprise community may have?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one kind of common one we get is, you know, because we have this sort of broad product portfolio, people are often like, okay, how does they, how can they functionally, let's say, sell into like what appears to be four completely different buying centers, Like they do provisioning, security, networking, application runtime. Like how does that work? And I think a big part of what we do as part of investor education is really that if we look at what's happened as organizations adopt cloud, they've actually aggregated those four distinct buying centers into effectively what becomes sort of a cloud platform team, right? So they end up having a single platform organization that says, "Hey, we're going to define foundationally how our application teams deploy their apps to cloud because if I have a hundred or five hundred different application teams I'm supporting." I don't want to invent a hundred different ways to deploy the cloud. (laughs) And then I have to manage that from a day two perspective. So in practice, you have a platform team that's defining, here's how we provision it, here's how we secure it, here's how we connect it all together. And it's one buying center basically. And I think that's a really, really important part of understanding the Hushport model is what we're really doing is winning the trust and partnering with those platform teams. And then it's that same team fundamentally, who generally is the Terraform buyer, the Vault buyer, the console buyer, you know, et cetera. And so that's what makes sort of the model work is it's not these four totally distinct buying centers, the way it used to be as for where, you know, the guy who bought compute was not the guy who talked about networking, right? Those were totally different buying centers. Like has changed that model because it's all software
0: defined. In terms of your sales cycle uh, and not to get, you know, too focused on sales, but like, where is the selling motion the easiest in terms of the size of the organization? Is it the SMBs or more of the enterprise segment?
1: Yeah. And I think part of this is a bit of a historical thing, which is we've always been, you know, from the moment we kind of started our commercial selling journey in 2017, we were focused on the enterprise customers. So I think historically we've had an outside sales force really only focused on kind of like, let's call it the global 4,000, you know, largest mm-hmm. account. That's been our focus and bread and butter. It's really only in the last, I'll call it 18, 24 months that we've started building out our cloud platform, the HashiCorp cloud platform. And that part of the goal there was to allow us to go after more of a SMB mint market, right? So that's actually a relatively new motion for us. Obviously the enterprise folks, it's high touch. They generally want to self manage the software themselves because, you know, they want to own their own availability and they don't trust third party vendors. In that mid-market SMB, they don't have the operational bandwidth or the spare heads, so they prefer a managed service that's kind of cloud delivered. So that's been sort of a net new push, you know, and I think what you see in just the customer accounts, when we share in our, our sort of public filings, is you can see sort of an inflection there, right. that is really being driven by those sort of smaller mid-market customers engaging through the cloud platform.
0: And what is one technology or trend that you are most
1: excited about over the next two years? I think probably sort of this notion of like, I'll call it sort of edge computing or ubiquitous computing, but we're starting to see this sort of shift, right? Where, you know, the costs have come down so far that people are starting to push it everywhere. And I think five G is going to accelerate this so that, you know, we talked to you know, customers in hospitality that are talking about smart hotel rooms, where the moment you check in your TV is already signed into your Netflix, you're, you know, talking to automotive cars, which are realizing great. They have a ton more bandwidth now with five G and they're pushing a lot more sort of connected car services through that all the way through to sort of appliance manufacturers, right? So I think when I think about that, it's, it's this different paradigm where now as an organization, you might not manage a hundred thousand servers in your data center, you might be managing 10 million devices, right. Or more. And so I think that's just be a a totally different scale of management. I think it exacerbates, you know, both the, you know, some of the management challenges, but also the security challenges. So I think those are all super interesting to me because I think it's a, it's a, two order of magnitude shift in some of the scale of challenge that we're facing. And I think 5G is just going to put fuel on that fire. (laughs) Great. Down to our last
0: two. So what percentage of workloads do you think will be on public cloud over the next five years?
1: You know, I've been surprised at how slow a call the global 4,000 has been just because there's so much legacy there. I think, you know, five years from now, even if we're up to 50%, I would be impressed.
0: (laughs) Okay. And what could go wrong, given you guys have such a tremendous momentum in terms of just how well you have done since the IPO? So what, what could go wrong?
1: You know, if this if, if COVID taught me anything, <laughs> it's that uh, I don't put much faith in my crystal ball. You know, I think by and large, I think where, where I spend my time and, you know, my focus is I look at how big our open source install base is. And I think about, you know, what's the ratio of our commercial customer base to, to our open source install base? And to me, it's just an execution question is it's like, okay, how do we just go? And even if we just focus on the existing open source user base, uh, we have such a huge, huge opportunity that that's my focus is it's a, it's more of an execution. One of, you know, hiring, scaling, continue to deliver, you know, differentiated capability, you know, build out the sales team internationally. I think we we're sort of predominantly us-based. So there's a, a big focus for us on growing international markets. So I think a lot of that is where I really think about it's like, okay, great. You know, it it's execution that's in our control, but that's where I think our biggest risks lie, right? Cause the, the install base is huge and the user community is huge. So, and I think the secular trend of cloud, I have a hard time seeing that, you know, go in reverse. I, I thought you would say
0: hyperscale competition, but you did not. So I'm guessing that's not something that worries you.
1: No, like I said, we we generally have a, a win win relationship with all the cloud vendors, so I, I don't I don't think about that that much. It's more much more about our own execution and how do we you know how do we scale into the opportunity.
0: Armand, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. I I learned a lot, and I really hope to get you back uh, over the next you know two to three years. And congrats on all the success. And uh, yeah, thank you to our listeners for uh, listening to the podcast. This will be available on the terminal as well as on the major app stores. And if you have any questions, please reach out to bi-tmt at Bloomberg.net.